mean, I think if you've played around at all with chat GPT or any of the new AI, you've seen the power of data. There certainly has, that has uh, capacity. IT, many, many things available that aren't being widely deployed. So we know the capacity is there. The willingness to do it is the biggest impediment. It really, truly is. And not an unwillingness because people don't want things to get better, but an unwillingness because if you've been doing something for so long in the same way, you're very accustomed to that. It feels very comfortable. It becomes very challenging to think outside of that particular lane. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Andrea Danes, who leads EY's Global Human Services team. Andrea is a recognized industry expert with almost 30 years of experience in the public and private sectors, specializing in programs such as Medicaid, child welfare, and other human services programs. In her current role, Andrea is dedicated to helping vulnerable populations access the social program assistance they need, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic. She's a data and analytics pro who's working hard to drive resilience and recovery in the delivery of human services. Andrea's passion for this work stems from her personal experience, including as a foster parent, and she's committed to establishing better service delivery models across health and human services. Today, we'll be talking about how she and her team are identifying emerging trends, building shareable solutions, and enabling collaboration that supports human services transformation. I hope you're ready for an insightful conversation with Andrea Danes. Andrea, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast today. I wonder if we could start by sharing with the listeners something about you that most people wouldn't know. That is a great question, and I will keep it away from the professional side since all of that is now visible on LinkedIn and tell you that most people do not know that I have four grandchildren. And so those grandchildren this year will be 12, 10, 8, and 6. They are delightful. They are probably the most perfect tiny humans on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) I think all grandmas think that, don't they? (laughs) I think we do. I think we do. Oh, and do you get to spend much time with them, Andrea? I do. All of them are within about 30 minutes of our home. So we get quite a bit of time with them. And of course, we get called upon to babysit. So that's still what we spend a lot of our time doing. (laughs) And I'm sure it's so lovely you can do things with them that you would never let your own kids do. (laughs) Absolutely. And my children, they call me out on that every single time. They want to know, why is this okay now, 20 some years later, when that was never acceptable? And I have a very easy answer for that. I am not responsible for turning them into good human beings. That is your job. (laughs) I simply get to enjoy them. So yeah, I don't have to be as strict as I was with our kids. (laughs) I highly recommend it, by the way. (laughs) 
my kids aren't quite at that stage yet. They're in the sort of early adult years, but they have very fond memories of all the things they got away with with their grandparents. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, Andrea, you've had an extensive career working across health and human services. You've worked for government, international consulting firms, and in your own practice. When it comes to working in complexity, what's been your favorite experience and why? I think hearing from the individuals that are actually impacted and affected by the work that we do, whether that's a vulnerable person or family who's been trying to receive services through these government programs or a government official that has desperately been trying to improve how the program is administered, really looking for assistance in how to, to actually execute on that and being able to come in and to be that, that additional resource to them. But when you get to hear the, the human connection, again, either from the receipt of a, a better designed benefits program or from the individual working inside government, it makes that complexity and the challenges that go along with working in that environment worth it. And it is very, very complex. If I may, I'll, I'll share with you something I shared with a group of young professionals just in the last couple of weeks who are very socially conscious and want to work in this complicated environment that we have. And they asked, you know, what was the most important skill to bring? And I said, I think it is a personal connection to the work. Because if you do not have that personal passion beyond ideology, really knowing someone that desperately needs these programs to work well for their own care and well-being, the complexity of it can tend to wear you down. Yeah. And I think over the 30 years I've been doing this, what's really kept me motivated is remembering how important the programs were to me when I was growing up and we received housing assistance and food assistance. And then also understanding and staying connected to individuals and families today who are receiving assistance through the programs and hearing their stories and, and getting up in the morning and deciding I will do my best to make it better for them. And I think that's one of the the risks for people working in this space, isn't it? Is focusing just on the program rather than the people, the families and the communities that are actually supposed to be helped by those and that the program is only one part of the bigger picture and thinking about how that program connects to everything else that's supposed to be actually supporting and enabling you know, a better life for the people that are receiving those services. And it's interesting, a point that you raise when you say that, you know, the programs are, they're government administered, and that's how government does things is, is in a program format. There's accountability for how the funds are spent since most of those programs are taxpayer funded. So that level of accountability creates some rigidity around the program yes. structure and the administration of benefits and the reporting back. And, and we tend to build large infrastructures, whether that's business processes or technology, that support the program. And in doing so, it, especially when you take that step back and realize many individuals and families are accessing many of the programs simultaneously, we realize we've created multiple front doors, multiple arduous processes that they have to go through. And so we, we speak a lot with our clients about taking that program-centric focus and shifting it to being person-centric. Yes. And person for those receiving benefits, but also person being those who are working inside the agencies and programs. The structure of the work has not kept pace with the change in the nature of the work itself. 
when it comes to vulnerable populations. And so I think transitioning into a person-centric view is, is both for the recipient and for the worker. Yes. It's really interesting that you draw out that it's not just the people receiving, but it's the people working in the system. And I think this is why it does get so complex, particularly when it's government funded, that accountability and public expectation and the media's role in trying to find out who is accountable when something goes wrong has a very far reaching impact on the behavior of the workforce and the way that they relate to risk and the way that they make decisions. And it just adds to the complexity. And yeah, it's very hard to shift culturally because of that additional layer. Yeah, you've certainly hit upon probably the toughest part of the job. Data and the use of data and the intuition that can come out from data. I mean, I think if you've played around at all with ChatGPT or any of the new AI, you've seen the power of data. There certainly has, that has uh, capacity. IT, many, many things available that aren't being widely deployed. So we know the capacity is there. The willingness to do it is the biggest impediment. It really, truly is. And not an unwillingness because people don't want things to get better, but an unwillingness because if you've been doing something for so long in the same way, you're very accustomed to that. It feels very comfortable. It becomes very challenging to think outside of that particular lane. And we really are talking about revolutionary style thinking when we think about transforming the safety net. Yes. So, Andrea, what is it that attracted you to working in this particular area? You mentioned earlier a personal connection. Are you happy to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. As many of my colleagues attest to, we accidentally fell into human services as a career path. I started working inside the state agency as a government employee when I was very young, worked my way up through the Child Protection Agency, transitioned over to the Medicaid Agency here in the U.S., and spent more than a decade as a government employee. I've spent the remaining 20 years of this 30-year path in the private sector doing some of the things you identified up front at the beginning. But really, two key personal experiences drive what I do and the perspective that I bring when I speak with government leaders. One is the fact that I grew up with a single mom, and we had government-subsidized housing. So I, I like to draw kind of the parallel In third grade, I was in three schools because we moved around quite a bit. We did not have housing stability. When I was in sixth grade, we were receiving access to this government-supported housing, and I was actually able to stay in the same school district from sixth grade through graduating high school, which was huge. Having moved around so much and then having that level of stability for that remaining six years of education was really important. We also received food assistance through the school system and then directly through commodity distribution. So commodity food distribution, which did precede many of the programs that are in place today. And then understanding that my mom went to work every day. So we legitimately had a full working parent, but that was not enough money to care for our basic needs. So I remember the importance of the programs, the difference that they made in our lives, and how hard my mom had to work to get access to those resources. The second experience I'll share, we have three grown children. I mentioned earlier the grandchildren being the the product of those children, but the youngest actually came to us through the foster care system. So the two programs that I worked inside of as a government employee 
I then got to navigate from the outside on her behalf and on our behalf as we stepped into that caregiver role. And it was really difficult, surprisingly difficult. I had worked in these agencies. I still knew people inside the agency. I could pick up the phone and call or send an email. But to just directly navigate through the web portal, through phone calls, through the normal access channels, I was unable to get things done for her. I was unable to find information. And it was a a really big eye-opening, I would say, for me to understand that what we had built as a government employee, again, in these programs, what we had built was not nearly as accessible as we had intended. And again, I think it just created the opportunity in the conversations with government leaders to say, when you think about any kind of change, any kind of transformation, let's really go back to how that change is going to impact those who work inside your agency and those who are accessing services through your programs. Because if you don't If you don't start with that in mind, I think inevitably you build again a program centric whatever. Yes. And it's not person centric and it's not nearly as effective or efficient. And Andrea, I completely agree with you on that because when I worked for the department here in Australia, we partnered with the Foster and Kinship Care Peak and went and engaged with over 400 carers and their support workers to actually hear their voices about what would good look like and then tell us what you're actually experiencing, what's the gap, so that we could actually understand where the system wasn't working. And so much of it was you can remove system barriers, but then there's the complexity of people working in the system and people's lack of experience and understanding that it is a complex system and people getting overwhelmed by that. It's not that you're well-intentioned. They definitely are, and they're trying very, very hard, but not understanding that you're actually working in a very complex system and what are the, the skills and the tools that I can use to help me navigate that. Absolutely. It was very eye-opening. Yeah. And I think we have to remember, too, those individuals are oftentimes at a point of life crisis. If they're reaching out and asking for government enrollment or assistance, they have something that is is a challenge, something that has put stress on themselves, on them individually or on their family. So then you take that to a whole new level. You're already in a stressful situation and you have to try to navigate an incredibly complex yes. access process. And look... A lot of people don't like asking for help. So it's even harder when you you layer over how people feel about the need to actually ask for assistance or someone coming in offering something when they don't feel it's needed as well. Yeah. So, Andrea, what do you see as some of the most significant challenges leaders in our health and human services system are facing today? Well, I would have probably given you a different answer two, three years ago. COVID has created some nuances and some new pressures and challenges, and and none the least of which is the workforce. The workforce has been so significantly affected by COVID in a myriad of ways, from the transition to remote work, people who switched jobs or careers or left the workforce during the course of the pandemic, unfortunately, also lives that were lost during the pandemic. All of these things, I think, have just created a tremendous amount of turnover, 
Every government leader that we speak with is challenged with how to recruit and then retain the resources that they're able to access and bring in. The turnover rate is also significant. And I think that's maybe a bit of COVID, maybe a bit of generational shift. I know when I entered the workforce, many of my colleagues, my counterparts at my age, the goal was to get a job that you could stay at for 20 or 30 years. That is definitely not the case with this next generation entering the workforce. They're very excited about experiences and having a multitude of experiences. So, you know, they're very direct about, I want to be here. I want to do good work and and I want to go on and do something different, which is just, again, not how these structures are built. They're hugely dependent on legacy knowledge, on just your personal experience as a worker in the program over years and decades even. So when we see this high rate of turnover and transition, the training courses are not set up to train that quickly. The retention structure is now, it's affecting the management structure. When you look at, for example, child welfare caseworkers, in many countries, the third level supervisor up has less than four years with the program. Mm -hmm. So now you're losing that depth of experience, even up into your upper levels of management. And I would say even the leadership, as the... The political climates become more challenging in many countries. The turnover in leaders at the very height and top of the decision-making in the agencies is also 18 months, 24 months tenure. So I think it's getting this realignment of the work itself to be something that's more nimble. I use the word agile, but not meaning technology development only, but having a programmatic structure that can respond to the changes in workforce and the pressures on workforce. Some of that may end up in consolidation of programs. Some of it is enabled by technology. If you can give someone an AI-enabled chatbot that can really assist in training and answering questions in real time, you can, you know, perhaps replace some of that legacy knowledge. But I think that workforce piece is really, that's a big one. The lack of technology modernization across the human services programs, again, globally, We have many agencies who still use primarily paper, who still fax things back and forth, who still require in-person visits or handwritten signatures for certain enrollment and eligibility processes. So we have a great opportunity to go digital, to really bring those processes into 2023 and beyond. I think the other piece I would say, so it's kind of three, the workforce, the movement to digital to get out of the 1970s and 80s way of doing work. And then the third piece is just the compounding need. Whatever region we look at, whatever country we're we're working inside of, there's an increase in need. We see growing disparity between those who have wealth and those who do not. We see those who do not with many complex needs. There's a huge increase in the requirement or necessity for mental health services right now. We see that, especially in our poor populations. So there's this just compounding factors that really require a much more invested approach by government. And I think, you know, I would say those are the top three. So workforce, the digitalization, and then the compounded need. But it's also interesting to hear the conversation shift toward outcomes. This expectation that if we're using taxpayer money to drive these programs, we want to know, are people better off because they have had some kind of interaction with the program? And up to this point in history, really because of the siloed nature of the benefits programs, the best we can say is 
we had more people or fewer people, they were enrolled for more time or less time, it cost more, it cost less. It's an administrative reporting more than anything, where when we begin to see this pressure for outcomes and assessing an outcome for an individual or family, you really have to think about holistically What are all of the needs that they have? What are all of the services that they've received in order to be able to assess if they're better off or not? And if you really, truly got a good return on that taxpayer money investment. Yeah. And it's very difficult when you try and bring that down to the programmatic level, because the whole issue of attribution to, you know, what proportion of that improvement in life course trajectory was attributed to this specific program. So that's why things like looking at collective impact and how do you look at things more holistically or what are the markers across a community that suggest that all of the investment going in is providing an uplift. But when it comes to, as you mentioned before, I know here in Australia, government decision-making processes, you know, before the cabinet will actually, or cabinet budget review committee will approve funds, they want to know this specific program What's our likely return on investment? How are we going to know? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It continues to be a challenge. And I think it's also interesting. We are continually tasked with measuring the impact based on bad things that didn't happen. If you talk about prevention, which is where we spend a ton of our time and energy with government, is really thinking about preventing these crises, then you're tasked with measuring How do you know something bad would have happened? How can you say with certainty that this prevented that bad outcome? And and again, it's an evolving conversation. It's an evolving methodology, but we do do lean in and we're getting better and better at tracking the impact these programs can have. Yeah. And Andrea, you have a really, you mentioned before, you've got a particular interest in the role that data and analytics can play, but you have a particular interest in predictive analytics. So really interested to hear more about how you think that can be used not only to reform services at a system level, but to really help improve some of those individual outcomes that we're, we're looking for for people. Wondering if you could sort of share some examples that you were aware of where that's starting to have a positive impact. Absolutely. And I do love this particular topic. I think we have plethora of data and we don't get a lot of information out of the assimilation of data that we have across the program. So we constantly collect it, we constantly generate it, but then using that to understand something and most importantly, to action something differently because of that information, we just don't see widespread quite yet. But I'll highlight just as one example, some work that we're doing in the UK. It's in a borough called Maidstone. And it really is focused on the unsheltered population. So those who have a housing crisis who have lost shelter. Lots and lots of detail. And and there are case studies available if you'd like to dig into those in a bit more. But I'll just summarize it by saying they had a continuing increase in new instances of homelessness. And they were tasked through regulation to become truly preventative. And I say truly preventative with emphasis because In our conversations, we have a lot of organizations that will tell us that they are doing prevention, but when we really dig into it, prevention doesn't always mean the same thing to everyone. So when I speak about prevention, I'm talking about truly going upstream, really understanding when something is starting to trend poorly 
and there's a higher and increased risk of a potential crisis. So in this case, it's a loss of housing, a loss of shelter. So in aggregating data about individuals, we were able to run that against a risk algorithm and see that increased risk toward homelessness, sometimes three to six months in advance of of the individual actually losing their shelter. What happened next, though, is also pivotal. And that is when those names were showing on that risk list, that individual got a phone call from a caseworker who was already armed with various programs that could support what we believe to be the individual areas of risk. So it was a proactive reach to say, we believe you might need some, you might qualify for, you might be interested in some assistance. Would you be interested in us helping you get access to those services? And my colleague in London says it much better than I do, but she says, never were we told to booger off. Everyone who was was proactively reached and asked that question said, yes, absolutely. I would love to have some assistance. I need a little help right now. What we were able to see over the first 12 months of doing work in that manner was a reduction in new instances of homelessness from 40% to 0.4%. Wow, that's huge. It, it's huge. And it, you did exactly what we did. <laughs> like, okay, intuitively, we all know prevention is better. It's the right thing to do. It's, it's the impactful thing to do. It's probably the cheaper thing to do. But to see it formulated and the impact that that had and to know that those numbers are more than just numbers. Those are individuals whose lives were impacted in a very positive way because someone saw that need in advance and allowed them to have an easier path to access services to meet that need. So at the end of the second year, we see Maidstone sitting around about a 9% continued increase in new instances of homelessness, while the surrounding boroughs sit at about 20%. So we see that over two years now of using this approach, less than half of the individuals coming into homelessness, into an unsheltered status, because we're using the data that government has about people for them. And that's a very interesting conversation because the immediate reaction in new places where we have this conversation is we can't share data. Well, that's not true. There are many, many legitimate reasons to share data. With the proper privacy and security safeguards, there is an opportunity to use that data about individuals for them. And I love to remind our our government leaders that data is not your data. That is the data that belongs to the individual that it's about. Mm. It's truly their data. And we have a lot of interesting conversations at this point about consent and what happens when you ask an individual, if I, government, have information about you, would you like me to aggregate it on behalf of you for your benefit? And again, no one says no to that. If you're using my data to help me, I want you to do that. Again, earlier I made the point being connected to people who have benefit program, continued receipt of benefits. And and I asked them if we could aggregate all the data and, and people will say, I've told my story so many times. I've provided that document so many times. I've made so many phone calls. Would government please put together the pieces of information that they have about me and quit asking me to say it again and again? So it's very exciting. It's a wonderful outcome for the individuals and families. It did end up being much cheaper for government to keep individuals housed, 
Children got to stay in their schools. Carers were able to stay in their communities. You know, there's just no reason not to do it other than it is a different way of thinking about the programs and adjusting the mindset around administration takes time. Hmm. I'd be really interesting to look at that whole issue of aggregating data in different cultural contexts or historical contexts around countries, because I agree with you, there are a lot of people who would say, absolutely aggregate my data. But here in Australia, I'm also aware that we will be people because of the history of colonization or the experience of that and the dark side, I suppose, that was associated with that. There would be real fear around having some of that data aggregated. So I think the important thing when you're dealing with the complexity of those issues in different locations and cultural context is probably to understand what are the additional barriers and challenges that you might come you know, come across. But I'm really curious about how did they get it to work in Maidstone and not the surrounding boroughs? Is it because it was a specific social impact investment or what made it happen there where, where it's not happening elsewhere? So, spoiler alert, it's actually now extending beyond Maidstone. So I think what and my colleagues in London could speak to this, I'm sure, at a greater level of detail, but but I will say it was a regulatory requirement. There was funding to do it. And I think there needed to be proof that the approach would work. And so now that the approach is working, it is actually being rolled out to broader Kent. And it's interesting as I have these conversations in Canada, in the US, the first question is, have you done it here? That answer is not yet, but we're certainly looking forward to that. It just takes getting someone to be able to see the impact and the good results mm -hmm. to really start to shift that mindset. And I'm excited to see the UK leading again in this area. I fully expect over the next three, four years, we'll see this as their standard operating procedure because it has had such a positive impact. And if I could touch back for a moment on something you said with the cultural aspect and aggregation of data, there are a couple of key words that come to mind. One is transparency. If you are going to use data for people on, on their own behalf, you have to be transparent about what data and the purpose. I think it's also a matter and measure of trust. And the trust part is really affected by the action that comes out of that aggregation of data. If the action is to create a watch list or in any other way to harm individuals or families, absolutely. Number one, it's nothing I would ever be involved in or UI would ever be involved in. But that's really the action coming out of that aggregation of data is what makes the trust, builds the trust, yes. creates the trust and allows that trust to empower greater use of data over time. That's a trust that's very precious that has to be safeguarded and not broken. I think transparency, again, is a huge part of building that. What data are we using? Why are we using it? How are we using it? And what is the action derived out of that? And I think that does go to, you know, by letting people use my data, do I know that I'm actually going to get assistance that I need? Or by letting people use my data, am I increasing the risk that I'm going to lose my children? Absolutely. You hit it spot on. Yeah. And it is interesting, we do see some of this work in child protection. 
I think there's a great opportunity there, but there is a lot to be learned about how to balance understanding an increase of risk without creating additional scrutiny. How does an increase of risk that's been identified really benefit the family with supportive services versus increase the scrutiny that they sit under? I think you're spot on with that. And I think the rest of the programs that are surrounding the predictive analytics need to keep pace. So things like family participation programs where the extended family is involved in decision-making about what should happen go hand-in-hand with that your increased awareness that there's an early problem. So involve the broader family earlier on in coming up with solutions that work for the family and keep the family together. Totally agree. Yeah. And so, Andrea, if organisations are interested in exploring this further, where would you recommend they start? Well, they can certainly reach out to me directly. I am on LinkedIn and I field a multitude of inquiries. So I will, I will give that as the easiest path forward. There's a great amount of research that's been done in all of these areas. And then currently, I actually am reading a book. I'm about to halfway through, so I can't attest to the validity of the entire book. But the book is called Radical Help by Hillary Cottom. And it is, it's probably of of all of the books I've read in our social program space, which is many, many, it's one that really does a great job of highlighting what is needed to help an individual or a family move forward. What role does government play? What role does community play? What role do relationships play? Whether it's transitioning youth or the workforce, children stable in their homes. And she goes through several pilots, several experiments that she and her group did the impact and the outcomes that they had, which are quite notable, but then also why those things were not able to be sustained. And it goes directly into the heart of some of what you and I were speaking about earlier, and that is changing culture and changing mindset. Just really the resistance that there is to doing things differently. So I would say that book is, and again, I'm only halfway through, so that's my <laughs> caveat that if, if somehow it takes a, a left turn at the end of the back half of the book, I haven't gotten there yet. But I think that and just speaking to people, speaking to other leaders, being aware of what's happening in neighboring countries, states, communities, counties, Getting out of the box of this is the way that we've always done it by asking if there are other ways to do it and and who is doing it in those other ways. We also continue to publish thought leadership in this area. We're releasing the power of prevention soon, which is really an aggregation of all of our work across the prevention space using data and analytics and how that's had an impact in various communities and programs. And we're teeing up the smart safety net which is our vision of what happens when you really start to connect the dots across social programs, wrap those around the humans that are impacted by the programs, reimagine them in a 2023 digital environment and make them easily accessible. If we truly give individuals and families access to the services, we could eradicate a lot of the poverty we see today with the programs we already fund. And it's not even just the predictive power of the analytics. It goes back to what we were talking about, about how do you actually measure outcomes? I know in New South Wales, the Data Analytics Centre there has done some really fantastic work in the human services space about measuring the impact 
of different investments by actually using de-identified data matching. And we're seeing some really positive progress in, in that space, but it actually requires people to work together across the system. And as you said earlier, unpack and change some of those old traditional systemic barriers to actually being able to do data sharing and data matching. Yeah, there is a bit of the the unspoken truth of the work that we do, that there are community-based organizations, nonprofits, governments, and others who are heavily vested in the traditional way of addressing poverty and other crises. And they're resistant, at times surprisingly resistant, Yes. when they cannot see their function in a new model. So I think that's part of our responsibility. If we want to architect a new model, we have to be articulate about everyone's position in the new model and that there is still room for everyone who wants to be helpful. It just may look a little bit different if you're preventing and you're incentivized for prevention versus post-crisis intervention. Well, I know in Australia, one of the big issues for us is also the transfer of funds from non-Indigenous organisations to community-controlled organisations. And that really does require very strong, effective leadership, a commitment to an understanding of the impact of you know, just what has happened in that space over many, many years. And we actually used some data matching to understand the impact that was being experienced by people in First Nations communities. And we could actually, without saying anything I shouldn't say, but we saw some really positive outcomes in keeping families together and children out of the child protection system by actually having those services delivered by community-controlled organisations who understood culture and connection to community, to country, and everything else that goes to a more holistic response rather than just a very narrow programmatic response to a problem. In short, we can build the best child welfare system imaginable. It will never be the best option for a child. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, our youngest came to us through the foster care system. She came into our home first at age 11. She left at age 13, was returned to her mom, came back to us at 17 and stayed with us until she went out into her own adult life. And through our entire time of caring for her, we always knew the optimal solution was for her mom to be strong and healthy and for her to be back with her mom. Mm. And we love her. I could not love her more had I given birth to her myself, but we knew the optimal situation for her was to be with her mom. And I think that's where we have to, you know, kind of reset our mindset and understand that family preservation is our highest calling. That is our best method of protecting children is to keep them safely in their homes with their families. And if we are removing children from a home that is eligible for additional benefits, but not receiving them because of the complexity of the system we built, shame on us. Yeah. We owe it to that family to make sure that they have the full suite of support. Then if they are unable or unwilling to care for their children, you have to have the next level of conversation. Yeah. But many of the removals, I would 
hazard a guess, well more than the majority of removals, those families are not receiving the full suite of assistance that they're eligible for. Yeah. And they don't have a chance to to get their feet under them before their children are gone. And it also goes to, you know, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I know from the people that I've worked with who are, just that importance of, you know, maintaining connection with family, with sense of identity. You might not be living there, but having that relationship because when you are old enough to look after yourself, that's still part of who you are and your well-being as an adult and goes to some of the issues we're seeing around mental health and repeating the cycle. And it's a very, very complex area and one I would love to see a much more sophisticated, informed conversation that happens with the broader community instead of the black and white type of reporting that we see and Mm -hmm. the damage that we see done on social media to people who are really struggling and need support and could have a different, better life if the system actually responded to their needs in a different way. Absolutely agree. Now, with predictive analytics, do you think there's any pitfalls that people should avoid? Absolutely. And we touched on that earlier, risk lists. That's, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. We cannot use data to harm people. We cannot use data to increase scrutiny on a hypothetical, but we can use data to see a a risk and offer assistance. And I think that's, you know, to me, it really comes back to the action and any project that we're involved in. That's one of the first things that we're determining with that client. What's your intended action? If this aggregation of data takes place and you have this information and you see this risk, what is the action that's going to result out of that? If that action is punitive toward the family, toward the individual, it's, well, it's nothing I'll be involved in personally. It's nothing our firm would be involved in. And I would strongly advise government to avoid that. I think what we're looking for is opportunity to aggregate the data and drive an action that is protective for that individual and that family, bringing the power of the social safety net into that situation, surrounding that family with all of the resources that they can access, that they would need to access in order to find stability. And I think we will continue to see opportunities to do that. I think we'll continue to see government leaning in. Primarily back to the conversation and the question that you asked me before about the pressure on government right now, the workforce has to do something different in order to stay. It has to become a more digital, more intuitive environment. And we've really got to be better at putting the humans at center and understanding the power of the safety net when it's properly deployed. So if we do those things and we drive that kind of action, then predictive analytics has has a huge opportunity here in the human services space. If we see digression into punitive action. I hope it dies quickly. I think it goes back to what you were saying about the Maidstone project as well before, the value of demonstration projects. So you can really go into it with that very much an ethical lens and what are all of the things that we need to put in place? What are we learning as we go? What do we need to adjust as we go before we roll anything out on a really large scale? so that you've got all those ethical considerations up front. Absolutely agree with you. And I think to continue to ask individuals 
I, I work with many of our advocacy groups here in the U.S. in particular, and I love the phrase, don't make decisions about us without us. You know, the opportunity to bring in those who are involved in these systems of care and say, how do you think this should work? Where do you think we could use your data and give you an easier path, a more concise path to enrollment? We can actually have conversations with those individuals and take their input and value that enough to make changes in the system as a result of it. Yeah. Now, Andrea, we've been talking about big systems and all of those sorts of things, but I'm curious what thriving and complexity means to you personally. That is such a good question. And you're asking me at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> where thriving feels like something I may, it may feel again tomorrow morning after the first cup of coffee. I'm going to tie it back to basically I'm going to quote my Uber driver from a few weeks ago. I got in the back of, of the car and he asked me very polite questions about what I did for a living and I explained it. And it was a day that I had had a lot of, a lot of sessions, a lot of meetings and was feeling a bit worn out. And he said, you know, well, you, you seem a little discouraged. And I said, it's just, I'm ready for success. I'm ready for the safety net to look different. I'm ready for us to do this differently. I'm ready for families to get the help that they, they receive, that they deserve, that they desire. And he said, I think you're thinking about success wrong. Every time you have a conversation and you help someone think about this differently, that is success. Success is not when the system is changed. It's as individual minds are changed. And his name is Anthony. And I am so grateful for Anthony's perspective. And I've quoted him incessantly <laughs> since we were together a couple months ago. But I think I'm adopting that as the definition. Taking the opportunity to have conversations, to get people to think a little differently, perhaps open their mind to reforming the safety net, whatever potential portion of that that they work on or have authority over and calling that success. And I think that fits so nicely with the theme of our podcast, which is about thriving and complexity, because you can't control, you can only influence. And I think that's a very nice reminder of that. And so, Andrea, I know we're nearly at time, but if people remember only one thing about what we've spoken about today, what would you really like them to remember? Would really like them to remember that the individuals and the families that they see, that they encounter, many of them are, they're struggling, but they are working as diligently as they can every single day to build a good life for themselves and for their children. If we have the opportunity through programs to assist them in that, that is our responsibility. Yes. And it's assuming good intent, isn't it? Absolutely. And honoring them, honoring every individual, every yes. human. Yes. Andrea, thank you so much for your time today. Now, I know you've already said if people are keen to reach out to you, the best way to do that is on LinkedIn to connect with you. So I encourage people to do that. And we'll also look at what we can put links to in the show notes if people want to go to the website and we'll look at how we can make that easier for people to find some information there as well. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer about some of these topics. Absolutely appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks, Andrea.
Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you heard something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.